me to John chapter 10. John 10, we're going to be in verses 19 through 30 this morning. Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. We've been spending the past 18 verses, well, really not we, Jesus has been spending the past 18 verses explaining who he is, a shepherd unlike any other, a good shepherd, the good shepherd. And he, in the midst of that, he's also explained who we are as sheep and how he treats the sheep, putting it all together that we are his sheep, and he lays down his life for the sheep. And now the Jews, as they're called, we'll see here in verse 19, they're going to show who they are, and then they're going to demand that Jesus be more clear, that he put the cookies on the lower shelf, as it were. They're going to they're gonna demand, speak more plainly. And, and nobody spoke more plain than our Lord Jesus Christ, but yet that's going to be their demand. And they're going to say, just tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? That's their demand. And he's going to acquiesce, but first he's going to speak plainly about who they are. And then he's going to tell who he is. And he's already been doing that for a little bit as we've spoken, right? First 18 verses, I am the good shepherd, my sheep hear my voice. He's done that. But is it possible at times when you hear a metaphor, you hear an allegory, that you can misassign the roles? That when you, can, you hear it, but you don't really understand who is who in, in the allegory, in the explanation of it has ever happened? When I was a kid... The, the, the biblical example of that, for me, a misunderstanding was John 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And as a kid, I was always like, I mean, all the vines that I see grow on tree branches. And I know that Jesus is the strong one, but he said that we are the branches and that he's the vine. So is he growing on us? I couldn't put it together. I, was, I mean, I'm a kid from Texas. I've never seen a, a vineyard where, like, it's just all growing. Vines are poison ivy, and they grow up trees, and they grow on branches, and that's what they are. I, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. And even until an adult, I was like, okay, he's talking about the vine itself, and it has branches. And to beat that into my... So we can misunderstand allegories really well, and we can be so dense as to not even know that they're about us. Remember David? David and Bathsheba, the whole scenario. And, and then in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan comes to him, the prophet, and he gives him an illustration. He says, hey, there's this guy in your kingdom who's super wealthy, has a big old flock of sheep. And he looked out the window and he saw that one man had one sheep and he stole that sheep. And David's like, let's kill that guy. And then Nathan, what does he have to say? You're the guy in the story. You have wives, you have power, and you stole Uriah's wife Bathsheba. You're the man. That's what he says. You're the man. The first time that phrase ever happens, it's extremely negative. We say you're the man and it means good. That Nathan says it, it means you're a bonehead. How do you not know that the whole time I'm talking about you? You missed the point of the whole allegory. So Jesus is in a situation similar to that. How could they be so dense? Jesus is now going to speak very bluntly to this crowd demanding answers. But... While the good shepherd does indeed have a rod and a staff, what does David say in Psalm 23 about that rod and about that staff? They comfort me. That seems paradoxical, right? Your rod and your staff comfort me? Well, we're going to see that. We're going to see a bit of 
polarization and, and paradox, that the strength and the clarity of Jesus is not a deterrent to anyone coming to him. It's a comfort to all who come to him. And John Calvin said when he was commentary, writing commentary on the pastoral epistles that he said the pastor needs to have two voices. He needs to have one for gathering the sheep and another one for warding off thieves and wolves. And we're going to see Christ as our good shepherd do exactly what Calvin was talking about, having two voices, one for warding off thieves and wolves, but one for gathering in the sheep. We see both voices this morning. And as we observe in our trek through John, before we jump into the actual text, to keep ourselves up elevated, this is the last episode in John of Jesus' public ministry. After this, everything is private. It's just Lazarus in, in chapter 11, just Lazarus and his two sisters. And then chapter 12 starts the upper room discourse where it's just Jesus and his disciples. So this is his last big public moment. So that, that should have some significance for us as we go into this. So verses 19 through 21, we're going to see the shepherd's impact. Let me read these. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words, the words of verses 1 through 18. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Referring back to chapter 9, right, when he opened the eyes of the blind man. So there's this division. We see again that when Jesus comes in his fullness, it divides. But John chapters really 5 and through 10 have shown us. Chapter 6, verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Six verses later, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. John 7, 12. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said no, he's leading the people astray. 743, so there was a division of people over Jesus. 916, some of the Pharisees said this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Why is it that we've seen Jesus in the Gospel of John cause so much division happening over and over and over again. Well, part of it's reason why he came to earth. Luke 12, 51. Jesus' own words, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. Division. So it's partly why he came on earth, but it's partly because of his nature of who he is. Just looking at John 10, what does the good shepherd do? He wards off thieves and wolves and says, get out of here. He replaces hirelings, hired hands. I'm here, I own, and I love the sheep. And he separates the sheep from the goats. He says himself, Matthew 25, 31 through 33, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So why is Jesus so divisive? But when we look at the person of Jesus Christ, he is an immensely complex figure. Who, but right now we're thinking about this complexity, and one of those uh, complexities manifests itself in this way, that he is entirely polarizing. In the sense that how can he be the most polarizing 
and yet welcoming person that's ever walked in the face of the planet. How can he be both of those at the same time? Nobody feels neutral towards him. We've seen that. They either really, really love him or they really, really hate him. And he keeps doing that. But yet all who come to him, he says, I'll never cast out. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That this is the figure and the person of Jesus. But think about it. When you really think about it, it's not that, it's not that foreign. It's not that weird of an idea, right? Just, just take yourself out of, I understand Christianity to some extent. I understand who Jesus is, that he's caught God come to earth. And let's just think about it abstractly. What would happen if God, the eternal, infinite being, puts on what looks like creation and is creation to, an, to, to the truthfulness of it and then enters into, invades his creation... That's not something that anybody can be neutral towards. There's so many things in our lives that you can't be neutral towards. And, and let me just scale down from God to be infinite to just give us some kind of reference. Is anybody neutral towards an acoustic drum kit in your house? You're not. It's impossible. You either love it or you hate it. Nobody's like, yeah, you know, I can take it or leave it. Either way, when I was in college, my roommate was a drummer, like a full-on rock band drummer acoustic set and we had roommates that put on they put in the the uh the, the little earplugs that go like this and they put on shotgun headphones over that i was the opposite i was like man play as loud as you want sam i love it this is amazing but the neighbors felt the same way they either called the police or they came over to listen nobody's neutral towards drum sets because why it's invading your space you either love it or you hate it that's what the Lord Jesus is doing, except for this is obviously infinitely bigger. These people that we see here in John 10 and that we've seen in 6, 7, 8, and 9, they're just responding like anybody would in any period of history ever. You are a fleshly, worldly person, and you're either drawn to Christ or you're repulsed by him because of bigger things that are going on that we're going to see here in a few minutes. And then let's not forget what made these people be divided as it says verse 19 there arose a division again what did he say that divided the people i am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep why would that divide anyone who's got a problem with that well that's what just we know what paul affirms in second corinthians 2 16 of the gospel to one is a fragrance from death to death and to another it's a life to life it smells like death and you hate it, or it smells like life and you can't get enough of it. Because all Jesus has said in this instance is, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. So the impact of the shepherd is, is unignorable. It can't be ignored. You can't be neutral. And now we're going to see the two voices, the warding off voice and the gathering voice. The first voice that Jesus steps into is the warding voice. So look at the setting in verse 22. Some time goes past. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So John, we know, often marks time in his gospel by talking about which feast is happening. So it's Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Dedication, Feast of Passover. So we're marking time. What we just left was the Feast of Tabernacles. And now we're at this Feast of Dedication. And do you know... What the feast of dedication is and just i'm gonna blow your minds right now this is hanukkah you didn't know it was in your bible 
This is Hanukkah right here. So Hanukkah is not a feast that's in the Old Testament. It wasn't one prescribed by God in the Pentateuch. Hanukkah comes about, the Feast of Dedication comes about in the intertestamental period. So the period between Malachi and Matthew. 400 years of no Bible being written. There are history books being written. Two of those history books are 1st and 2nd Maccabees. You ever heard of those? History books, not Bible, but history, because of a guy named Judah Maccabeus. He leads this revolt against uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who's this Syrian uh, general, warlord, whatever you want to call him, who comes and invades Jerusalem, desecrates the temple. Uh, if you possess any kind of scripture, it's a death penalty for you. And then he leads this revolt. And the people kind of get encouraged by his boldness, and they follow him, and it's kind of like this peasant's revolt. And they, and they drive out this warlord, and, and then they reestablish temple worship, which included the nightstand, the, the lampstand, the menorah, right? So that's where it comes from. And that, that whole revolt happened around December, which is why Hanukkah celebrated now. So Jesus is now in this time. So John often just fast forwards. So this is just a few months later. John just is just getting to the next few months. And so something's happened. They've been stewing on what he said about being the good shepherd. And, and then Jesus jumps back into that same analogy. And John just kind of keeps it all together, talking about the good shepherd. So he's here, and it's winter, which is probably why he's in the colonnade of Solomon. That's just a portion of the temple grounds that has a cover. It's got columns holding up a cover, like a walkway that kind of goes around. So he's there, and that's where they're going to all come to him and ask this in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Just tell us. Quit keeping us in suspense. And it's not so much like there's this mystery that's going on. It's, it's really about, could be better translated, how long are you going to be annoying and obnoxious? Just tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And it's not because they want to know. We're so desperate. We're looking for the Messiah. They're like, just go ahead and incriminate yourself so that we can kill you. That's what they're really after. But if you take it even at the, the, the best, you think the best of these people, which we're going to find out it's actually the worst as the passage goes on. Hasn't Jesus already answered this question? He's already answered this question in abundance. How many times has he told them, I am the way of salvation. Come to me and you'll have living water. I am the bread of life. I am the door of the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. All who come to me, I'll never cast out. He said this over and over and over many, many times. And his teachings and his miracles tell us that he's from heaven. Anytime there's a division and there's people that are on his side, what do they always say? No, a sinner or a demoniac or a crazy person couldn't do what he does. They couldn't do those miracles. They couldn't make a lame man walk. They couldn't get the blind man to sight. So they, they see these things and they know these things. So why are they still asking? Why are, why are you saying be more plain than you have already been. Stop being so annoying. Why are they still asking? Because unbelief demands forever verification. Unbelief demands endless verification. What do you do when you're at school and there's always one kid who learns a bunch of card tricks because they don't play sports, they're not very smart, they learn a bunch of card tricks and they blow your mind, right? That kid's always drawing a crowd at lunch. And when you see the trick, 
that you can't understand, what do you do? Do you go, oh, wow, amazing, great job, man, see you later. Now you say, do it again. Do it again. I want to see it. Show me again. I'm going to see what you did, and I'm going to figure it out because you don't believe it, right? You don't believe it, so do it again. And then he does it again, and you can't catch it. And you go, no, no, do it again. Do it again. Right, because unbelief demands endless verification. That's what they really are. They don't believe. We see this in kind of the charismania out in the world. I've got to see gold dust come from the ceiling. I've got to see all of these crazy miracles happen. Why? It's not faith. It's unbelief looking for proof. It's doubt looking for proof. Keep proving to me that you are God. Isn't the woman at the well the exact opposite of that? She has one interaction with Jesus, one, where he knows something about her that he knew supernaturally, but somebody could have found out if they just lived there for a week. And what does she do? She goes and becomes a mass evangelist in her town. And the whole city of Sychar in Samaria comes to the foot of the cross, seeking repentance, and gets it. She believed. She didn't keep demanding, okay, well, you told me about my husband's. How many fingers do I have behind my back? She, she doesn't. She just says, who is this man? And then runs all over town saying, he told me everything that I ever did. You've got to come see this guy. Could this be the Messiah? She believed, and these people don't. They're doubt looking for proof. But we've seen this before, right? We saw this with the feeding of John 6, 25 to 26. And when they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're not seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You don't want me because of who I am. You want me because I fed you. And then, so they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? He already did it. He made bread and loaves just continue to come. And they're like, well, what are you going to do to prove it? That you really are the Messiah. He already did it. We've seen this before. So Jesus is going to affirm that this is springing from unbelief. Verse 25, when he says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. So their question is not coming from innocence. It's disbelief, committed disbelief. That's where they're coming from. You don't believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Everything I've done has told you who I am. Even though he's never explicitly said, I am the Christ, except for the woman at the well, he did tell her that explicitly. He had his works testify. And he's not going to say that, I am the Christ, until he's already under arrest. Because what are they looking for? They're looking for a political hero to come and crush Rome and make them awesome so that they can conquer the world. He said, I'm not, I'm not that. You're looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. And if I say that I'm that, then this is all going to go weird. He doesn't say that on purpose, but he does tell a woman who's not looking for that, the woman at the well, one exception. He affirms that, that it's coming from unbelief. He's already told them enough and shown them enough for them to know that he is the Christ. And eventually, it becomes an insult to keep demanding proof, doesn't it? I mean, what if you, with your spouse, were just like, okay, what are you going to do today to prove that you love me? Prove it. You don't love me today. You know why? I don't have anything right here. Where's my breakfast? Where? It's not here. With this Pop-Tart? That's not love. What are you going to do? I mean, eventually it becomes an insult, right? This happens at Texas A&M every day. When you're a student there, they're like, you walking on the grass? You don't love this school. 
You went under that tree at this time? You don't love this school. You walked into a baseball game, not in between innings? You, are, you might as well go to UT. I mean, what are, you, what are you even doing? You're not wearing your ring the right way at the right time on the right day? You're eventually just like, hey, I go here, and I like it. So please stop making me jump through these hoops. It becomes insulting. That's where Jesus is with this crowd. Look at verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. This is the warding off voice of the shepherd. The warding off of wolves and thieves. He isn't going to just tell them like he did in verse 25, you don't believe. Now he's telling them why you don't believe. Notice the order of the wording here. What does it say? You do not believe because you're not of my sheep. How do we normally function in the church? You are not of Christ's sheep because you do not believe. That's not the order that Jesus says it. He says that you don't believe because you're not mine. Not, you're not mine because you don't believe. He's already said this before, though, as well. John 8, 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So let's just stay with Jesus' chosen illustration here in John 10, a sheep and shepherd. What sheep has ever chosen to be a part of a certain flock? Does the sheep just kind of exist on his own and then look out at the shepherd that are available? The flocks are all there, and he goes, I mean, his flock's pretty good, but, man, they're going to go near that hillside, and I don't really want to mess with any of that stuff. And that flock seems all right, but most of the sheep are kind of ugly. So, uh, But that one, okay, that one looks like the primo one. He gets the good grass, so I'm going to go there. No sheep's ever done that, right? Any sheep that's a part of any flock is because the shepherd has said, come, has gone and gotten that sheep and brought that sheep into the flock. That's Jesus' chosen illustration, right? This is the thing that he's chosen to convey the truth. And the shepherd knows every sheep by name, right? Remember back to the verse 18 verses. I know my sheep. I call their names and they come out. And then remember, he's the door, right? He lays down in front of the gate or in, in the opening of the fence, rather, and makes his own body the gate. So nothing comes in or goes out that doesn't first pass through him, right? That, that's how you establish a flock is through the shepherd. Sheep don't determine their status in particular flocks. Shepherds do that. So what is Jesus saying? What is he saying to these people in real life? Make the illustration come to life. He says, faith is not something, saving faith is not something that everybody inherently possesses and is now needing to be persuaded to spend it in the right place. You understand what I'm saying when I say that? When we talk about faith sometimes and it comes to the saving faith that, that is required in order to be a part of the flock of Christ, we act like everybody has this little thing, this little substance called faith, and my job as a Christian is to get you to spend it here and not somewhere else. It's like everybody's born with $5 and we're trying to convince them, don't spend it at Burger King. Go to Chick-fil-A. It's where the holy food is processed in peanut oil, and that's where you need to spend it. But that's not the reality, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. Faith is what he's saying is something that the shepherd graciously gives. Faith to believe is a gift. Christ's sheep are given the ability to trust him as a shepherd. And he gives some verses, Galatians 4, 9. But now that you have come to know God, comma, or rather to be known by God. 
See, when we say we, that, 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 that trope that goes through um, just kind of American culture, well, I found God, I found religion, I found Jesus. It feels like that to you, doesn't it? But it's not really how it happened. Christ found you, right? Christ goes and seeks the sheep that are lost and brings them back to the fold. Look at Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you. Granted to you means it's been given, right? If you get a grant, that means it's a gift, right? You've been given something. It's been given to you that for the sake of Jesus Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer. So belief is a gift. You believe, Paul says, because it was given to you as a gift. So these Jews, likely Pharisees in this instance, they don't believe because they can't. They don't have the desire or the ability. And I know what you're thinking in your head right now is it's scrambling your brains like an egg. Well, what about free will? What about my own free will? Am I not making real decisions? Am I a robot? Am I an automaton? Is that what I am? No, 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 no. You absolutely are making real volitional decisions, and you are free to follow what it is that you love most. Your greatest passion, you do follow that. What we're not free to do is change what we love most. See, that's the miracle of the rebirth. That's the miracle of conversion, is that when I'm born, we're all born loving sin and self. And that's what we love and we seek above all. And I need something to change that in me. It's like a fish. A fish is free to make all the decisions that he or she, I guess they have male and female. Yeah, they have to, right? I didn't go to biology in college. He or she, fish in the lake, you're free to live and you're swimming. You can swim under that log. You can go in that cove. You can jump out of the water right there. You can eat that frog. You can eat that fish. You can do whatever you want as a fish. But what are you not free to do as a fish? Get out of the lake and walk like a human. You're not free to be anything but a fish. So yeah, you're making those real decisions, but you can't change what you are and say, I want to breathe air. You're not free to do that. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a precious verse to us as Christians, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Who is the one who creates? God, the triune God of the universe. I can't create anything, much less myself. And I can't make myself into a new creation. So Jesus is going to be more clear on that in verse 30. But right here, if he can change our affections to him, and if he can make a people who hate him love him, those who are not his sheep become his sheep, and if he can make us new creations, then what must he be? He must be God to make us a part of his fold, to make us new creations, because that's what we need, is to be a new creature. So the warding off voice that Jesus uses as a shepherd, there it's loud and clear into the thieves, but the voice changes now to the gathering voice. In verses 27 through 30, he transitions from warding to gathering but do you notice that the crowd is not going to change? He's talking to the same people. That's important to remember. He's talking to the same people, indicating that his offer for these goats to become sheep and be gathered in is real. He's really offering this to these people as they listen. 
So in verse 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. You're not following me because you're not my sheep. I know my sheep. That's come up so many times in this chapter. I know my sheep. And let's not let it be lost on us. Do you ever feel, have you ever felt like a face in the crowd if you went to like a mega high school or a mega college or, you know, you're at, you're at a big stadium or whatever? Like nobody, nobody actually cares about you. That's one of the hardest transitions as far as schooling for me going from Texas A&M to going to seminary as I assume the administration doesn't know me, doesn't care about me, and it, I'm irrelevant. And you go to seminary and they're like, hey, how's it going, Stuart? And you're like, whoa, wait a minute, you know who I am? And you're like calling me and you want to like, no, you want to work on my problem actually? Like you want to actually fix this thing that I have going on? Because you feel like a face in a crowd, like nobody cares about me, nobody knows about me. You ever feel like that in, in a, at your job? And I'm just like, the boss doesn't know me. You may even like your job. You may even like your employer. You may even like all the way up the rungs of the ladders. But they don't, they don't know who I am. So if I go and tell them, hey, I got a family problem. I got to miss some work. Or I, I know I've used up all my, my paid time off, but I mean, my, my daughter's in the hospital. You don't think, well, they're not going to care. They don't really know me. This is a great place to work, but they don't really know who I am. My problems don't really matter. Do you ever feel like that at church? Or do you ever feel like that in just in the Christian world? That this is definitely the right team to be on? And this is, this is where the truth is, but I'm just kind of lump, lumped in. I mean, this is just a school of sardines, and I'm just kind of in it. And it, it's going the right way. Can I encourage you to hear the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 27? I know my sheep. We all come into the fold of Christ one by one through the same shepherd. He knows you. And we saw earlier, he calls you by name. A name that in the first century world would be very specific to the, to the idiosyncrasies of that individual sheep. He knows you. You're not a face in the crowd to the Lord Jesus. You're not a number. He's not building an empire of followers who he doesn't really care about them. He's just going to get out on the balcony and speak to the masses. He knows his sheep. He knows them intimately that's the savior that we have he's personal that's why that i will forever and always say that the illustration that christ chose as shepherd is the right one it should never be ceo it's not ceo it's not charismatic military leader it's not president it's not governor no we have a king who is a priest and who is a prophet who is a shepherd and knows all of his sheep Oh, we should hear this loudly and abundantly. So then how does the one who knows his sheep care for them? Verse 28, here's the voice of gathering. I give them, my sheep, eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. How does he care for his sheep? He gives them eternal life that is eternally secure. It's secure. It cannot be undone. I say perhaps, but I could say definitely that the number one Christian struggle that I've seen, counseled, and been a part of is assurance of salvation. Am I really saved? Am I, am I really a, a child of God? Am I a daughter, a son? I, I, I'm constantly 
answering those kinds of questions and, and, and walking through that with people. Where here? Let's just go here. That's why we read Romans 5, 1 through 11. Because when did Jesus die for you? When you seemed like a good investment or when you were a sinner who was an enemy and ungodly and weak? It was those times. It's when you were that, not when you seemed like a really good in prospect and now you're not really proving it, so we're going to get rid of you. Died for you at your worst. So when we look at this passage here with this illustration of shepherd and sheep, we ask ourselves, where does my assurance lie? Is it in my performance? Is it in my sheepliness? Or is it in the strength of the shepherd? If you're a sheep, you're out in the wilderness, and the wolf, you hear the howling of the wolves, what do you do? Do you look at yourself and go, oh man, what am I going to do? I don't have claws, I don't have teeth, I don't have... I'm slow, I'm fat, and I'm woolly, and I can't see at night, and oh, I'm dead. Or do you just go, there's no hope here. Where's the shepherd? There he is. Oh, there he is. He's right in the middle of us. Oh, yeah, he's right. He's right here. That's where the security lies is in the shepherd. The sheep has no security. It's a defenseless animal. So his only hope, her only hope, is the shepherd. They only look to security at the shepherd. That's what we're always having to force ourselves to do because what makes us discouraged in our faith is whether or not I'm saved. I look at myself and I see worthlessness. I see sinfulness. I see repetitive sin over and over and over again. And so therefore, I'm not. I'm out. I'm, I'm exposed. Take your eyes off of that because all of that is true. You're a sheep. You are defenseless. You are weak. You make foolish decisions. You make repeated foolish decisions. But where does your security lie? In the shepherd. He says, I give them eternal life, and they better not blow it. That's not what it says. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Whose hand are you in? The shepherd's hand. That's where you are. That's where your security lies. This is the Lord Jesus has made a promise. He said in John 6, 37, if you remember, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. When you're a sheep in a flock, your biggest threat is not yourself. You're not really a threat to yourself at all, as long as you're in the right position, as long as you're not like in a canyon or in a cave or drowning in the water. If you're just on ground, like that's not your threat. And the wolves are not your biggest threat. Because you have a shepherd warding them off, right? The, the, the thieves and the robbers are not your biggest threat because you have a shepherd warding them off. What's your actual only threat? Your only threat is the shepherd. But if the shepherd promises, I will give you eternal life, you will never perish, no one will ever snatch you from me, and I will always hold you in my hand and I will never cast you out, then there is no threat to you. You are not a threat to you. If that's what the shepherd has promised, I will never cast you out. If you're in the flock of God, it's permanent. It cannot be undone by you because you didn't do it. You didn't set it up. You didn't make it happen. <laughs> and then when you think about the eternality of God and the election, the glorious doctrine of election... There's never been a time in the mind of the triune God of the universe that you weren't a part of the plan. 
There's never been a time where you got added in. There, were ever, there was never a time that you were not known and loved by God. We get saved in time and in space, but you were always going to be there. He always was going to come and find you. You were always going to be a part of the flock that cannot ever be assailed. And in this intertrinitarian plan, Jesus is going to say, hey, by the way, it's not just me. Look at verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Have you thought about the giving aspect? The Father who has given them to me, and then John 6, that all the Father gives to me. The Father's giving us, his church, his bride, to his son. He's giving us. And why is he doing that to his son? Because he loves his son. So therefore, we are a gift of love from the Father to the Son. And the Father is greater than all because he's God and so is the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's impossible to be removed. If you could be removed from the flock of God, here's what would be assailed above all things, the very nature and character of God. That means that God would want something that he didn't get, that God would have had something that he couldn't keep, and that something else was stronger than him. You, the devil, sin, accidents, just slipping through the cracks. Something is out there more powerful than God, which is why Jesus says, no one and nothing is greater than him. The very nature and the character of God is at stake in your eternal security. You are as secure as God is omnipotent. If God's power can be assailed or weakened or something, then you should worry about your salvation. But if God is omnipotent, all-powerful, and he's all-knowing, and he is everywhere, and he is holy, and he's eternal, and he's infinite, then you're secure as those things are true. That's the hope that Jesus gives to us. And in case there's one more lingering question out there, I did have a college kid ask me one time uh, when I was doing college ministry, he goes, yeah, but a sheep could jump out. I mean, no one's going to snatch them out of his hand. So yeah, we're safe from Satan or false teachers or from whatever, but a sheep can just hop out, right? Let me go you back, take you back to an encouraging thing that Jesus says in verse 28. They will never perish. What would happen if you jumped out of the very hand of the Lord Jesus Christ? You would perish. And Jesus promises that none of my sheep will perish. So therefore, not even you can undo what the Lord Jesus has done for you. We hold to that hope. Can we have an infallible illustration of this? It's one thing to just say that, of God securing people safely. One of the best ones that I can think of, Genesis 7, 15 through 19, or 15 through 16. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God has commanded them. And the Lord shut him in. Now, of all the lives on that ark, how many made it safely through the flood that the Lord shut them in? All of them. Not a single one. It's almost as if the very hand of God is closing the door to the ark. And who doesn't make it through the flood that's in the ark, the, this place of safety that God has shut them in? None of them. They all make it. They all make it. Every soul on the boat makes it. So we trust that in our God. 
And we are increasingly encouraged because of verse 30. I and the Father are one. This isn't something that I've had to convince my dad of. Like, no, no, dad, I promise they're going to be awesome. They're going to be worth it. I, I know you really don't know. You're not on board for this, but I really think that you should be. He's not doing that. And the father's also not doing like, hey, son, I know you're not super pumped about this people that I'm about to give you, but I'm going to give them to you anyways. And you should really be on board with it because I think it's going to be the best and work out for you. I and the father are one, not the same person, but same in essence. The Greek word for one is neuter. It doesn't have a male or a female gendering on it. And that means that it's essence and not person. They're the same substance or stuff, if you have to think of it like that. We have the same mind. We're not making different decisions and coming to different conclusions. Jesus is not like God or similar to God. He is God of the same substance. So then we can know and trust and hope and be encouraged. And this whole conversation started. How did this whole conversation start? Because they wanted to know if he is the Messiah, right? Hey, tell us plainly. Quit annoying us. And then he goes even further than that, right? One thing they say that he's the Messiah because they weren't really sure about the deity of the Messiah. I thought he was just going to be a really super guy. He goes even further than that and says, I am God. He goes even further. I'm in one essence with God, the Father. And we're not going to get into it, but verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Pretty strong response to making a statement. So when Jesus clarifies back to the beginning of what we talked about when he clarifies their misapplied illustration what makes them the most angry when he is blunt about who they are when he's using his warding off voice that's not what makes him angry but they become homicidal when he tells them who he is that's when they're ready to kill him is when he tells them who he is because he has the claim, not because he said that he was there to ward off, but because he said, I have the authority to gather in. That's what made them murderous. See, to created beings, Jesus is audacious. The, rea the, the, the fact, the reality, the presence of, of God in flesh, claiming that authority, doing those things, it's audacious. But to burdened, weary, tired beat down sinners it is eternal life you will real that's really the deal that you're offering lay down your life for mine lay in the doorway so i don't have to even defend myself me save me love that's that's what you're offering I, i'm there sign me up eternal life that can never be lost or stolen that audacity then becomes the most attractive, magnetic quality of Christ. They want to kill him for it, but all those who know Christ as Savior through repentance and faith, which is all it is, they come running to a salvation that cannot be undone. And I'm going to read these verses and then we'll be done. But Romans 8, 38 through 39. Paul's at the end of Romans 8. We could have read Romans 8, but it's a little longer. He's at the end of this long passage about eternal security before he changes topics in the book of Romans at the end of chapter 8 and he's said a lot of things about why we should believe that we are secure and now he's just throwing everything and the kitchen sink in on top of it he says for I am sure that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a blessing to have that. Paul's just saying all these things and then anything else that I haven't mentioned that you could possibly think of, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's how secure we are in the flock of Christ. And I hope that you feel that and that you know where to go when you don't feel it. When you don't feel that security, you go to John 10, Romans 5, and Romans 8. And there you find the encouragement and the hope of eternal security in the good shepherd. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we, we come to the end of a passage like this and we see the anger and the rage of the crowd of wanting to, to kill your son. We're bewildered, but we also understand because we were there at one point. We, we were disgusted by being told that we were sinners in need of a savior at one point. We were, we were put off and, and perturbed by being told the, the truth that God is eternal and that he has a plan and that if we want to be sheep in his fold, it's up to him and not us. We, we're frustrated and angry when we were told that it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause us to have to bow our knee in submission and ask to be saved by the good shepherd, ask to be brought in so we can see their, their disdain for your son and we can identify with it but we can also look back now on the other side, having been saved, having been made new, having been washed and made clean, and we can just see only pity. We can see with tears in our eyes that that was me. And Lord, may we continue to take that same perspective and those same um, moistened eyeballs out into the culture and see those who rage and spew against the created order and against biblical truth and have that same kind of, of pity and compassion and that we would go, that we would see them like Christ does, that they are sheep without a shepherd and that we would just say we, we have a shepherd, we know who he is and invite them to come and compel them to come in even though it may cost us. And Lord, we are driven to worship when you explain more of who you are. That the shortest verse in our text this morning that when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, we don't, we don't even really fully comprehend that. The, the oneness of essence that exists in, in between you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're humbled by that, that we are finite and you are infinite. You can say true things that we can't comprehend, but just merely affirm and say that we believe them. That means that you are God and we are not. And even on our best days, we worship you for that fact, that you are God and we are not. We don't want to be. We want to be worshipers. Father, we, as we conclude our, our worship this morning and as we seek to regather this evening, we pray that our worship would be pleasing to you because of all that you've done for us, that it would come from hearts that are eager to adore you, eager to offer up the meager sacrifices that we have to give to you because you've laid down your life for us. And there couldn't have been a more backwards, upside down, and, and maybe even foolish thing to do based on our perspective, but you did it anyways. You took your life back up, and you reigned supreme. And we worship you, God, as our compassionate king, our near-knowing, loving, and protecting shepherd. We pray this all in your son's glorious name. Amen.